Hey everyone, welcome back to the Influencer Economy. This is Ryan Williams. Thank you so much for downloading or streaming my episode with Hunter Walk, number 16. Hunter is partner at Homebrew Venture Capital, a seed stage fund based in San Francisco, and I had the pleasure of chatting with him at the Homebrew headquarters when I was up in the uh, Bay Area recently. Some of you may recognize Hunter as not only an investor, but he's a blogger as well. He writes regularly about startup, entrepreneurship, and venture capital at hunterwalk.com. He also previously led consumer product management at Google, helping to deliver billions of video playbacks to mobile devices, phones, and computer screens across the globe. Hunter believes in the bottom-up economy, which he talks about on the show, as his seed stage fund writes bigger checks for smaller amounts of companies. We talk specifically about what kind of investment he makes and how his investment philosophy was shaped by working at Google. And finally, Hunter details two companies that Homebrew invested in, one of which is The Skim, a daily email newsletter that gives people what they need to know to start their day, and Ship, S-H-Y-P, which is a simple process that helps people ship items basically to anyone anywhere in the world. Um, but overall, it was great hearing about his time at Google and YouTube and you know why he invests in certain types of companies and his strategy in the long run with Homebrew. Please check us out at InfluencerEconomy.com. If you're listening on iTunes, please hit the subscribe button. And uh, Hunter's a great guest, very uh, engaging. One of his first jobs out of college was writing and working on Conan O'Brien behind the scenes, so you can totally tell that in the conversation. Without further ado, please welcome Hunter Walk. Hunter, welcome to the show. Thanks, it's great to be here. And your office, yeah. hosting me at home. I guess I'm always here, so You're I should o- say it's great for you to be here. <laughs> it's Thanks for having me. Roles You're are, welcome. Roles are reversed. So you're, we're at the Homebrew headquarters. Worldwide, worldwide headquarters. HQ. San Francisco. And it's one of, uh, how many offices? Uh, it's one of one. One of one. Well, maybe I should say it's, it's, it's one of dozens. It's just the only one we have open right now. Okay, that's an optimistic way of looking at yeah. it. Um, so great to have you. Many things to talk about. And uh, wanted to, if you could introduce yourself and Homebrew and what you're all about with your investments up in the headquarters. Up in here. Sure. Yeah. So Homebrew um, is a seed stage venture capital fund that's uh, based out here in San Francisco. Uh, we're about a year and a half old. So I like to describe us as a, uh, a startup that writes checks instead of code. Um, my partner, Satya Patel, and I had worked together at Google about a decade ago and always wanted to get back together. And so when we started talking about what that would look like, we actually didn't start out by saying, oh, let's go raise money and do a fund. We were, we were talking more about what we love doing, where we think we could be additive into the sort of general tech ecosystem, and what were some of the things that we thought would be happening in the world over the next decade. And um, Homebrew sort of came out of that. And so um, I'd say we sit at the intersection of, a, of an investment model and a thematic focus. Investment model is try to be a partner of conviction. So we'll write fewer larger checks, I guess, do about eight to 10 investments a year where we're trying to help you know, lead or co-lead around. And from a theme, uh, uh, broadly, what we call the bottom-up economy, which is really just how technology is helping individuals, sole proprietorships, small and medium-sized businesses um, uh, finally create or gain access to marketplaces, revenue streams, or efficiencies that maybe before didn't exist or were only available to larger institutions. Okay, you're a regular blogger. I write. I write because I have to. You have to. In the sense that, like, uh, for me, it's the path not taken. Uh, when I was uh, uh, back in college, I was always sort of like the nerdy uh, high school, you know, newspaper editor. I was a history major, so I was doing a lot of writing then. And um, there was a. I was working on a on a, 
on a talk show uh, my senior year, uh, writing where, like, where was this? Uh, Conan O'Brien. Okay. Um, writing, uh, researching celebrity guests and writing interview questions. And so for me, the path not taken was like writing for a living. And I nowhere believe that you know, as a craft, I'm anywhere as good as maybe I, I hopefully would have been if I had done it for the last you know decade and a half. Um, but sometimes it's like passing a kidney stone. I just like there's something I need to get out. And uh, when it's ready, you know, you gotta. And it's not always easy. It's not always easy. It's not always nice to look at, uh, but it's a sure. <laughs> it's, it's a relief when you hit the publish button. And what did you do for Conan then? It was actually the second season of Conan, so it was uh, not quite the media juggernaut that it, it became. Um, but I was while in school was um, working in the research team, which basically meant, uh, you know, manufacture spontaneity, kind of research upcoming guests and help write interview questions. And so you had that for a year, and then when did you move into the technology world? Because um, you were early at YouTube. Yeah. Uh, so for me, the the moving into technology, you know, I wasn't, I, I'm not classically trained as an engineer. My uh, exposure to what I'd really think tech didn't come through command line. It came through desktop publishing. And the idea, my mom's an artist, the uh, just seeing more and more of the newspapers that I was working on or the art my mom was doing um, becoming digitally aided. And so for me, it was a printing press. It was a, it was a tool of creation. And my dad, my dad did business. Um, and so I, for a while, I didn't know whether I was left brain or right brain. But it wasn't until I sort of got into consumer tech uh, that I decided that I didn't have to choose. Like the, the best uh, technologists, uh, and especially, I guess, the best product managers, um, understand both algorithm and anthropology. Um, and so I sort of found my way into product management without really knowing what that meant. Okay, and then your time at YouTube, you were there right before the acquisition? Or I came right after. So, right after? So I, I finished up grad school in 2000 out here um, at Stanford, spent about three years at a startup called Linden Lab that built a virtual world called Second Life. Oh yeah. Um, so I was the first, the first social network there. Yeah, yeah, we built sort of a, a really interesting thing there. And then, um, uh, a few quarters after commercial launch of that, moved over to Google. Uh, spent three years uh, working on AdSense, so helping to you know sort of monetize uh, all this content being created. And then right after the acquisition, um, moved over to YouTube. Uh, so that was January 2007. Oh wow! And at that point, was YouTube something that like pirated content came out? Like was that Lazy Sunday? Yeah. So that was post Lazy Sunday. Okay. YouTube at that time was about 18 months old, about a year since Lazy Sunday. Yeah. Um, it was Which only was one of the first viral videos. Yeah, it was really. still only 65 people, so it was a rather small, you know, yeah. small team. And um, the way I sort of described the phase that I was there for uh, was, you know, um, taking this thing that was burning hot and you know phosphorus and trying to turn it into a furnace, something that could burn forever. And so making sure that this wasn't just a consumer fad or phenomena, but how would we become part of people's lives? Um, uh, from a monetization standpoint, you know, people would derisively say that it was all dogs on skateboards. How would oh, you yeah. monetize this? History of dance. Exactly. And uh, so taking it from something that people thought would never make money to something that made billions of dollars a year and thus is able to distribute billions of dollars a year to content creators. Um, and then also, you know, the legal challenge. Like people, you know, may not remember, but... Um, you know, YouTube had a bunch of lawsuits, including, I guess, one that technically is, no, I guess they, they, we recently settled it, but like Viacom had this big suit and a bunch of others. Right. And, um, you know, those all, uh, you know, were you know, dismissed or otherwise dropped. And so we, had, we got to take this, this wonderful community and wonderful product and help ensure that it would be around for a really long time. What was it like watching the transformation? Because back then people were making one-off videos like Daft Punk hands mm -hmm. or funny, videos that people weren't thinking about branding themselves or building YouTube 
subscriber bases. Yeah. Well, you know, I think they it started pretty early. Um, you're absolutely right that uh, people, you know, when they first approached the platform, uh, you know, it didn't have expectations yet. It just was like, well, wow, this is cool. Um, you know, maybe I've got a video camera or a web camera or something. Let me start putting stuff up there. I always thought the magical moment for a content creator, whether it was somebody who was just a hobbyist and amateur or somebody who eventually became, um, you know, sort of a full-time business, was when you uploaded that video and you started to see the view count get bigger than the number of people you knew mm -hmm. or, or, you know, or the following wherever you sent that link. You know, so maybe you passed it around to a bunch of friends or you knew you had a mailing list of, a, you know, a thousand people and you sent it out and all of a sudden you start mm -hmm. to see tens of thousands, hundreds yeah. of thousands of people watching your video. And that's really intoxicating, the idea that you can reach that audience. And, in, and certainly, you know, we used to joke that we'd like to make sure that you could always, you could build a TV-sized audience without having to ask for approval from anybody wearing a suit, mm -hmm. right? So no, no suits. No, yeah, no gatekeepers, right? Te right? Technology is a really permissive gatekeeper. It's called, you know, try your best. It doesn't mean that everybody succeeds to the same extent, but it should mean that you have, you know, as near equal access as possible. Um, so I think what happened was people started to see that, uh, YouTube wasn't just a utility that would help them publish videos, but it was an experience and a community that could actually bring them audience. And so then, like VidCon popped up, and oh yeah, I went this past year, and I was every other thing I heard was, "Can I get a selfie with you?" Not, <laughs> not to me, but yeah. to the creators. And these people were rock stars. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's so much fun to see. I didn't go this year, but you know, I went the first two years, and it's amazing just to see the scale, as well as. Um, you know, people always say, oh, you know, well, now, you know, there's business guys there and mainstream and like agents. I, yeah. I mean, to some extent, it's actually beautiful because I remember, you know, the th maybe year three year four, you know, the YouTube uh, sales team would bring some of the, you know, VPs of marketing CMOs from some of the large brands and say, look, you have to see how passionate and authentic these communities are. And I think anybody who goes to VidCon can't help but come away, um, you know, feeling like, we are still very early into the opportunity for um, YouTube content creators. And so now with Homebrew, mm -hmm. the bottom-up economy, how much were you influenced by seeing YouTube for so long grow? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think not just YouTube, but when I look at sort of Second Life, AdSense, and YouTube, what um, I love platforms that bet on people. They do that by giving people tools to create um, a community, you know, community and audience to do that within, and then hopefully also close the loop with an economic model that uh, allow people, if they so desire, to turn their efforts into dollars. And so Second Life was kind of all of that within a virtual world environment. AdSense was probably the back end of that. You know, the web was the publishing yeah. tool and audience. Um, but up, you know, up until AdSense, it was really hard if you were a small and medium-sized publisher, or even a large publisher complementing a direct sales force, to have, you know, valuable, uh, useful ads on your site. Um, and then finally, of course, YouTube, probably yeah. all, you know, all three of those Absolutely. just in a video environment. So I think it, um, it gave me a lot of appreciation um, for what technology could do, as well as I think um, you know, sort of a, a trust uh, you know, and, and empathy for, let's call it, the long tail. And what do you think of 
Like, what networks are you active on? You tweet a lot, obviously. You've got your blog. Yeah, well, it's funny. And how does it influence? For, for a while, people would always joke that they'd call me their first friend. And I said, like, well, what does that mean? And they said, well, any, any social space I join, um, you're already there. So you become the first person right. like a friend. And, uh, Is that because you know the people that founded these companies? Sometimes. But sometimes it's just, like a, you know, it's fascinating stuff. And I also think it's hyperbole, right? Like, it's not like I'm, you know. You're not Tom not, from MySpace. I'm not, I'm not Tom from MySpace. I'm not first, first on everyone. But, it was, but it's, I, I do think I have a... I have an interest in seeing how these things work, even just from a tinkerer perspective. You know, I find that I gravitate personally towards platforms that um, uh, seem seem free and open, um, that can support a variety of voices, even if I don't, you know, agree or find them all interesting, um, and where I believe that they're, um, you know, sustainable in some extent. Right. So, uh, you only want to invest time and energy in a platform that you don't, you know, you, you think is going to be there a year from now. And you know, I think some of that is in the user's responsibility, um, allowing some of these platforms to mature and make tough decisions about their business, or if there's a way to pay them directly to do so. Right. Um, so personally, you know, I I blog, you know, uh, off of a you know hosted you know WordPress, and and really love the guys at Automatic. Um, I tend to be active on Twitter. Um, I cross-publish some of my blog to you know LinkedIn and Medium. Um, you know, and then. Uh, I've tended not to spend as much time in some of the vertical social spaces, I'll, you know, photography, so on and so forth. Although, um, as a relatively new parent, you know, I uh, I have fallen victim to uh, to a few uh, parenting groups and things like. Oh, that. really? Yeah, and you know, for homebrew, it's probably we probably use the same same approach, except I'm probably a little bit more um, cognizant of audience there, in the sense that. What I really want to do is reach entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, there are there are first uh, you know sort of folks that we think matter, and so if there's places that entrepreneurs live, I want you to want to be, be there. there as opposed to just trying to pull them all to me. Which is at Machinima when we were trying to talk to brands to advertise on our network with YouTube, mm-hmm. we said you're you need to be where audiences are. Yeah. Like you have to reach people like millennials, young younger people, people that love YouTube. And it's similar philosophy for yeah. you and entrepreneurs. So, for customers? example, yeah, that might be one reason why, um, you know, if I'm, uh, you know, active on Product Hunt or, um, you know, interested in seeing the uh, conversation threads going on within founder dating or you know mm-hmm. just different places people meet. There's sometimes I'll be a, you know, sometimes I'll be a lurker, um, you know, but in a lot of places I'm, you know, I'm trying to contribute in a way that'll help folks, even if it's not something I, you know, have invested in or. Um, you know, I'm trying not to try not to run the ROI calculator, you know, ahead of, uh, you know, participating. I think it's important to, um, you know, to participate first and then look for opportunity as opposed to vice versa. Just being a human. Yeah. You know, I benefited tremendously over the course of my career from folks sharing knowledge with me. And so there's definitely a little bit of a pay it forward attitude towards the, uh, types of communities or events that I participate in. One of my listeners actually, I told them I was interviewing you and they asked me specifically, does having your blog and being active on Twitter help you with getting deal flow or connecting with entrepreneurs in a way that if you didn't participate? Oh, I, I think absolutely. I mean, I think it would be nice. I don't know to what extent, um, but I'm absolutely positive that it's significant into, you know, it's with some people or in some communities. And, um, uh, and I think for a variety of reasons, uh, maybe even I, uh, maybe even I, uh, as a new VC, I might punch a little bit above my weight because of the people that I've been able to connect with online. Um, and I'd like to think that's because uh, they get a sense for who we are, who I am, before they maybe ever meet us in person. And 
I, I don't think you can be all things to all people. I mean, some of you know sharing my thoughts or my experiences, um, some of that is self-selecting. There's going to be folks who might be great entrepreneurs who just don't resonate with with my point of view, and that's fine. Um, but you know, on the other hand, I hope, and and you know, we've seen it at least thus far in this first year and a half, that there's a lot of folks who do. And knowing a little bit about you know about me before they shoot me an email or before we sit down for the first time, you know, may give them a better sense of, you know, how they want to use that time, what that, what else they want to find out about me. Um, so I've definitely benefited from it. I've also benefited from it in the participation, uh, not just of reaching entrepreneurs, but other VCs, um, within that community. Um, I'm able to ask questions as I learn this profession that people with far more experience, you know, weigh in on. And so when I talk about something, it's not always because I think I'm right. It's because I want to, you know, see what other people think as well. And so you also have a certain accessibility because people can reach you. Like I mentioned previously that I, we've been in some Storyify mm-hmm. threads that we've talked about entrepreneurship and startups. Oh, yeah. So do you feel like people think you're potentially more accessible to answer questions or oh, probably. I mean, yeah, to help I mean, the community? I, people specifically use that word a lot. Uh, one, one person said, uh, you're the most accessible, you're the most accessible successful person in Silicon Valley. And I said, I think you're probably wrong about that. And he's like, well, you amended it to be like, okay, you're the most successful, accessible person who responded to my email. <laughs> okay. So they're closing the data set. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which, so uh, you're the smartest guy in this room. Right, exactly. I, I called up a bunch of smart people. None of them called me back, so I'm talking <laughs> to you. Um, but yeah, no, I think it does. I mean, uh, I think a lot of these, um, a lot of these forums are uh, not one-way broadcast mechanisms, but they're two-way discussion. And, uh, you know, I'm glad there's not a tool, you know, native to Twitter that allows me to filter my, you know, response uh, uh, threads by, you know, by number of followers that the people tweeting at me right. have or stuff like that. I mean, I know obviously for, you know, there's plenty of other software that does that and a lot of large brands and other folks, you know, use that to help them manage their communities. But, you know, for me, it's, if, you know, if you've taken the time to reach out to me with anything that seems at least semi-personalized, like I'm going to respond at least once, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, on Twitter and email. There's a lot of other, you know, I, I can't guarantee a response if you sort of randomly message me on Facebook or things yeah. like that. But I think the communities where you live, it's important to, it's important to participate, not just, um, you know, try to, you know, push out things that you think are going to, to benefit you know, you. And what do you think like for the homebrew brand? Like you said, I feel like accessibility would be a, an adjective I'd use to describe it. I like, think so. I mean, you know, we were deliberate in sort of naming ourselves yeah. and it isn't because, you know, we're craft brewers. I mean, we wanted something that suggested, you know, small, uh, you know, uh, community made without being, you know, hopefully overly pretentious. Um, also, of course, a nod back to the homebrew computer club of the seventies. Yeah, I saw and, that in the lobby. Yeah. Yeah. We have some, uh, some of their newsletters and stuff. Uh, you know, where uh, Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs met and a bunch of other startups came out of, um, you know, which just, I think, harkens back to a time where, you know, we can't forget that both, you know, sort of technology, you know, is ultimately about hobbyists, you know, not just professionals. And um, and uh, we're so, f- you know, fo- forward-looking in technology sometimes that we forget that we're all standing on the shoulders of the people who came before us. Right. Well, there's a theme I'm realizing with people that I interview is a lot of them do passion projects on the side, like Brendan from Cluster has uh-huh. created a lot of side projects that have become businesses. Yeah. Or uh, Freddie Wong mm-hmm. was making YouTube content and Freddie W got 7 million subscribers. Yeah. Like what do you think about, it seems like it's a more generational thing that it's more accepted now that you have, a, you'd rather be happy with something that could fail 
that you're passionate about rather than making a lot of money versus doing something maybe um, you don't like? Is it generational? There's certainly more opportunity and tools to do that. And so maybe there are people who before just couldn't express that or didn't have the, didn't have the platforms to do it and now they do. Um, I also think professionally, you know, if our parents' generation thought they'd work for one company for their lifetime and our generation, um, you know, believes that maybe you'll work for a lot of companies, that just looking where the economy's going, that, you know, it's not crazy to think there's going to be an increasing amount of project-based work and collaboration as opposed to sort of linear companies. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, building, building your skills, building your relationships, um, doing things because they excite you as opposed to just because you're being paid um, up front, I, I think are all sort of both, you know, economic factors, um, technology-driven opportunities, as well as maybe just human desire. Like maybe it's, you know, sort of the trailing hundred years that were the anomaly um, and now we're really returning to, you know, an ability for people to be craftsmen, like a trade society, yeah. um, which is kind of cool. Totally. Um, if not, you, you know, build, sort of, you create, if not, you, you know, destabilizing a little bit for people. Uh -huh. Um, totally. But, uh, but I, you know, I get excited about that. I thought, you know, uh, for, for me, I always got to see with AdSense, you know, with second life, with AdSense, with YouTube, with some of the other projects I've been involved with, um, the magic that, that people have in their heads and their hands. And, you know, how, for me, it doesn't matter whether it was created in a basement or on a Hollywood back lot, like, you know, there can be something compelling and really special about content, you know, no matter where it originates from. I always, that was one of the things I always hated at YouTube when you, people would say like, when is YouTube going to get some high quality content? And I would, you know, quality is a word that I tried to only use in reference to visual quality, like actual, you know, sort of, uh, 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 bitrate, and um, because I always felt like quality is a word that um, you know the the legacy institutions use to derisively um, you know uh, label uh, upstarts as something you know uh, uh, inferior right. to incumbents. You know, yep. And uh, and I just think that's you know that's that's silly also. And so for a company like the Skim, mm -hmm. which I, I read, I think it's so well done in yeah. the email format. And that's a media brand. Folks should know uh, it's at theskim2ms.com if yeah. they want to go sign we'll, up. We'll link for, <laughs> to it in the description. Um, yeah, so we'd love to hear more about why you invested in that company and really, yeah. I think it's a great, so great, the skim great is a, place. Skim is, a, um, is an email newsletter out of New York um, that uh, takes the top stories of the day and writes them up for you in sort of a summary format um, you know, with a very specific editorial voice, um, that usually of a, you know, of a millennial woman and, you know, sort of the big vision actually is, um, to sort of be a trusted brand for what you need to know, especially what you need to know that day, um, which starts with news, but goes much broader. And so, you know, hopefully the skim sort of has the same impact over time that, you know, maybe the today show did, you know, 50 years ago. Um, it's a little bit atypical for us. In fact, I think it's probably a little bit atypical for most traditional venture funds. Um, in the sense that it's, you know, uh, on the surface, it's content. Um, you know, it's, the skim started out with two, uh, two women who uh, were working at NBC News, and although they were, you know, sort of advancing quickly in their, in their profession, felt like the format and medium that uh, they were a part of wasn't necessarily as relevant to their generation for a particular type of question, what do I need to know? And so decided to step off a career path and, and create this. Um, and when we, when we invested in them, 
uh, it was basically MailChimp and WordPress. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, nobody wrote much code um, to get this started, but still were able to build, you know, one of the fastest growing newsletters that we've seen. And so combination plus uh, of uh, founders well matched for their for their journey with a big vision, plus just crazy, crazy viral organic metrics and a demographic ultimately that from a business standpoint we felt was underserved. Um, was sort of like, you know, if, if you imagine the clicking wheels of a slot machine, like that was sort of the, you know, gold nugget, gold nugget, gold mm -hmm. nugget. If any one of those was, you know, came up, you know, cherry, you know, maybe we wouldn't have invested. Um, but, uh, you know, sort of since the time that we invested, they've grown their, you know, readership base, I think, you know, 5X, they just, uh, uh, you know, announced that they were well past 500,000 um, uh, active readers, so not just list size, but people who open this up. And it's amazing, the, the, although it's told from a, fe you know, in a female voice point of view, it's not women's news. It's not mm -hmm. health, lifestyle, family. Um, and so I think as a result of that, 30% uh, of their readership is actually male. And people usually find, yeah. those men usually find out about it from a woman. Um, but once you sort of sign up, you're hooked. And, and so I have definitely, uh, you know, sort of as an investor, I have a bias, but I, you know, I started, I started as a fan of the skim even before we, you know, oh, before wrote you invested? a check. Yeah. And what, what about ship? Oh, so yeah. That's so a cool company. Ships, uh, out here and, um, God, fascinating. They just uh, announced a, a $10 million Series A round uh, less than a and year. And you were a seed stage investor. Yeah, we were seed stage. So we led their seed round last fall. You, you might explain that in case some people yeah. don't. Yeah, so um, if you think of sort of like software having version releases, uh, uh, startup companies have funding, funding milestones. Mm -hmm. um, seed is usually where you know there might not even be a product yet, or if there's a product, there's not much traction, and you have investors with a high risk tolerance willing to take a bet. Um, and then you have investors who um, come on afterwards with increasing amounts of capital um, as the company's gaining momentum to try to help them uh, fund uh, you know, growth of the team and business. So SHIP raised a, you know, about a $2 million seed round last year and raised a $10 million Series A round um, just earlier this summer. And so it's all coming together um, for them. But they, they focus on what I'd sort of call first mile logistics. Um, Folks listening to this, there might be a, a number of people who've tried some of the same-day delivery services or things like that. Help, you know, get me that you know Pampers from uh, the drugstore to my house, and, and certainly there's an incredible amount of money being spent on that. Ship is a little bit of the opposite. They take something that needs to be shipped and um, handle all of the packaging and shipping. So, for example, it's a it's a little it's an app. It's available here in San Francisco and New York this fall. You take a picture of what you're trying to ship, you press essentially, you enter an address and essentially press a button, and a ship hero, which is kind of what they call their messengers, will come to your house, take that stuff offsite, package it up, and send it. And so they see everything from you know consumers sending gifts, doing e-commerce returns, to small and medium-sized businesses, um, uh, seller platforms, Etsy sellers, eBay sellers, Kickstart, Kickstarter projects, um, essentially eliminating all of the uh, logistics cool. hassle of their the business. Fulfillment and being which is such a pain point. Oh yeah, you talk to these people. You talk to like an Etsy seller. Yeah, and you know, do you think they, you know, did they decide to start, um, you know, selling on Etsy because they love shipping? No, they love what they're making, and they love creating a community, and they love interacting with their customers. The fact that they have to spend multiple hours a day dealing with logistics and packaging, you know, is a headache they want to eliminate from their business. But to date, you know, it's been hard to. You, of course, you can call a a UPS or something to pick something up from your house, but you still need to deal with not just the hassle of scheduling that, but all of the actually packaging it yourself. And so ship eliminates all of that hassle. And, um, 
you know, we really think it's going to be as it starts to get integrated into some of the, you know, sort of within the selling um, uh, platforms themselves. Um, so, you know, you're just, you know, you're clicking through on the website, you're saying, um, okay, this is where I want to send it to. And you're just hitting a ship it button. Okay. And I know you have to go. So we'll do one final question. Yeah. So for the influencer economy, part of it is people creating the tools to help these people with followings and notoriety, um, build audience, monetize community, like Michael with moment fits in this yeah. world and people like Kickstarter, YouTube was a pioneer. Like, what do you think about that space as not only an investor, but as a, as a community member? I think it's a great space. Um, so two of, two of the areas that I'm paying a lot of attention to from an investment standpoint. Uh, one, I'm really fascinated to see all these people doing sort of various versions of what I'd call expert networks. Um, sometimes it's the uh, uh, augmented by technology, improved by technology, and sometimes technology just does the matching. Um, so this is the, you know, sort of the, hey, you might be in Los Angeles and you're looking for a nutritionist, and you can get online, find a nutritionist that's going to work with you virtually, become part of a, a you know a healthy support group, things like mm -hmm. that. Um, sort of making more scalable, taking the knowledge or expertise that's in one person's head and delivering it to one or many people. Um, so we're, you know, we look a lot at that. Uh, and that could be locally or virtually? Exactly, exactly. Um, I'm also very interested to see long-term whether the, you know, Inf tools that are built specifically for the influencer ecosystem. Um, you know, I sort of think like, for example, there's going to be, you know, people talk about a freelancer economy, you know, okay. So, you know, if you look 20 years ago and there was the rise of the, you know, the SMB companies like Intuit sprung up to essentially provide software for those people to help manage their businesses. Mm -hmm. Will this next generation of sole proprietorships be running on the back of the, you know, financial software, for the SMB generation, mm -hmm. or will there be whole new types of tools like Ship that are you know created for totally. or benefit um, you know people who are selling on these platforms or transacting on these platforms? So I you know haven't uh, you know Ship was one investment. We have a few other things there that we've looked at. Um, in some cases, I think it might still be still a little bit too early for the software infrastructure layer, but it's definitely an area we're paying attention. So there's companies now that are launching in these new ways, their marketplaces that didn't exist yeah. up until recently. Exactly. So when you have more and more people who are, you know, uh, uh, earning income from various sources um, or thriving within specific platforms, what are going to be the, uh, are there going to be businesses built on top of those platforms or across those platforms to service, you know, those workers, those sellers, you know, the, the supply side mm -hmm. um, of that economy. Great. Cool. cool. That's a great ending. Thanks again for having me. Yeah. Thanks so much. <laughs> Take it easy. Yeah.